Chapter 17, Social Legitimacy and Buffalo. So what brings you to the waiting room of the damned? Maria Natapov, who played Carla, expressed an interest in helping me promote the film. She was proud of the movie and her work in it, and had every reason to want it to gain exposure. I wasn't going to deny help in an area I've never been successful, and Maria was an incredibly social and active member of the Boston acting community. I was excited to hear her ideas and take advantage of the networks she belonged to. We spoke about promoting a local screening of the movie, but most private theaters were overpriced and booked for months. Because I was a two-time film school grad, Maria assumed I possessed connections, or an education, that could launch the film, but I most certainly did not. As we spoke, I became more depressed, lamenting about previous failures and being altogether negative. She politely offered that the manner in which I promote my work on social media has a lot to be desired. She suggested that we both attend a class on social media that a renowned Boston-based actress was holding. I'm going to refer to this person by a pseudonym, Claire, to protect her identity as I move forward in disparaging her character and way of life. It was a two-Saturday seminar, open to the public for $60 a head. Maria said she really wanted to go, but because she had no day job, she couldn't afford it. Because Maria did such a great job on the film, never complained, provided her own transportation, and didn't make a dime, I thought it would be nice to pay for her seat in the class. And what the heck, I would go too. Maybe I would learn something. In general, I kind of rejected the idea of social media expertise, but who knows, maybe I had a blind spot. Maria suggested that I join a number of local filmmaker and actor Facebook groups, the largest of which was administered by Claire. Claire was a looker, but with a sort of hippie edge. The way she perceived herself, or at least wanted to be perceived, became clear as I watched her daily under-one-minute video blogs, where she introduced us to her art studio space, where all her social media and acting courses are taught, and showed us her vulnerable side. She's one of these people who finds ways to talk about how amazing it's been and how blessed I am to spend my life traveling around the world, and makes ridiculous statements like, Today, I'm going to work on letting go a little. Gag me. Nina gave me a ride to Somerville, where the studio was located. We got there a bit early and met up with Aaron and Mike for lunch, since they lived nearby. They razzed me for going to such a stupid workshop. Nina wandered the area while I went into the belly of the social media beasts for the next five hours. Claire was very sweet. I was one of the first attendees. I forgot this was a class designed for aspiring actors, so of course the attendees were going to be late. I sat around awkwardly and had a difficult time joining in the networking that was taking place around the flavored water and low-calorie popcorn. Claire was something of a local celebrity, and I would discover over the course of the class that she invented that perception entirely. As a byproduct, the room filled with hangers-on and kiss-ups, loudly expressing their approval of everything Claire did and said. Maria eventually showed up, and after what felt like hours, the class began. Claire's beefy Ken doll boyfriend began with a 10-minute opening on the importance of social media and its wide adoption across the world, and how difficult it is to get noticed in this climate. He arbitrarily snuck in that he gave the same talk in France, to impress us, obviously, because why is that relevant, and then left it to Claire. With a small projector and a very performative style, Claire wowed her 25-some-odd attendees, most of whom were post-middle age and looking to break into acting. One student was 16 years old, and like everyone else, he wanted advice on how to score good acting roles in the Boston area. Claire gave a reasoned and, at times, data-driven seminar on effective means to do that. The goal, she said, was to embrace pull marketing rather than push. Instead of pushing your product or brand or acting resume or whatever onto an audience that may or may not want it, you should lay seeds across multiple social media platforms that will cause the greater community to know you, know your face, and when opportunities arise, reach out to you. You want to pull people toward your brand by establishing a well-known presence inside your population. She often compared it to mending a farm. 
So how was this done? The short answer that was presented in so many different ways was to reach out to people you want to work with and comment slash flatter them on what they're working on. Don't simply reach out and tell them about you or ask for something, but instead pretend you're an engaged and supportive member of their content. If you just put out what you want, you smell, she said, with a clenched fist and an awkwardly dramatic performance. You smell. You smell all over. You smell like desperation. And we want nothing to do with you. It sounded like dating advice. Compliment her on her hair and give her flowers. Show her you're interested by asking a question. She went on to describe the concept of social legitimacy, which is a kind of proof that you exist as a relevant person in the community by leaving evidence that you've been active and social. This is based on tweets, Facebook posts, Instagram photos, and YouTube videos. So if, for instance, I were to tweet, I just cast Maria Natapov and having fun up there, looking forward to the shoot, I haven't helped Maria because I didn't link the post to her Twitter handle. Instead, if I were to post, I just cast at Maria underscore actor in having fun up there, looking forward to the shoot, that will show up in her Twitter feed and anyone who follows her, which lends to her social credibility. By sending out positive social media vibes in that way, she's likely to reciprocate and help me build proof that I too am a person that matters on this planet. And aside from Jeff Torelli. And this is the sort of thing that sends me into a blind rage. One thing I have never gotten is when people turn to supposed experts who want you to engage in tactics of the so-called big boys and attempt to make them work on a very, very low level. It's like starting a lemonade stand in your front yard and then insisting you're a CEO, coming up with a mission statement and beginning to scream about marshalling your workforce. Anyone who has artists in their life and are on social media are probably familiar with the amount of glad-handing and backslapping that goes on there. It's fine. Mom always said to be polite, so there's nothing wrong with telling someone they're good at what they do and are talented. Unless, of course, you're just saying that to get something in return. What you end up with is an endless circle of people all singing the praises of each other without being selective in who they find talented or even interesting. You get people who will repost anything if they think it will give them some kind of leg up. It's disingenuous, and that is what smacks of desperation if you were to ask my non-social media expert self. Connections are great. I'm not belittling the importance of them. They are very important in many ways. But I often have to ask, who are you reaching with your Facebook or Twitter amid several universes worth of Facebook and Twitter accounts? If I Facebook about the very talented Frankie Frayne, it's because he's my friend, and I want other people to know he's a good filmmaker, the same way I'd recommend people listen to the Angry Samoans or read the book Ham on Rye. I don't think Frankie is looking at that post and saying, <laughs> Now the masses know of me. It's only a matter of time now. For most of us, posting this stuff on our social media really has absolutely no impact. And the more you do it, the more your friends are just going to ignore you because suddenly, what was supposed to be a way to keep tabs on your ex-boyfriend has become a marketing venture for someone you friended when you met them at a party once. 99% of the time, this kind of backslapping goes totally unnoticed and just makes people on your Twitter Facebook feeds roll their eyes because it's the 12th time this week you've talked about how lucky and blessed you are to work with such a talented blah, blah, blah. Like people who use the word genius to describe just about everything, you'll be tuned out quickly. Get as many followers as you can. Make sure you have over 500 friends. Why is the advice here never figure out how to make your art better? You know, the supposed product you're selling? It's almost a foregone conclusion that what you're selling here doesn't matter a lick. How you push it is what's important. If you can't act, if you've barely exerted any energy into learning that craft and already looking to push yourself onto other people to enhance a career, then what are you doing acting? 
It's like trying to book work as a pilot when you aren't even halfway through your logged flight hours. The answer is that, for some people, acting, or whatever, is only a cover for wanting to be well-known. It's not love of the craft that's bringing you there. It's a desire to be recognized. The older folks in the group were depressing. They were either eager to chime in and mention something innocuous that made them look hip to the times. Vimeo is better than YouTube. You all should use it. Or they stopped the class cold to ask impossibly simple questions like, Claire, can you please show me how to create a page on Facebook? The link to create a Facebook page is on the front site, and they walk you through the process with big, child-friendly buttons. As her hunky boyfriend told us, this stuff is adopted the world over. Claire clearly wanted to express that and stick to concepts rather than mechanics, but at 60 bucks a whack, she kind of couldn't, so we spent a lot of time humoring the inanity. Claire's revenue seems to come from acting workshops and a headshot photography business, rather than from being a working actress, both of which she gained credibility for through social media strategies. But I'm not trying to insult her. She more or less admitted that she manufactured her own buzz and reputation. If you pretend you're a big deal on social media and provide some frequent but inflated evidence, before you know it, perception will be reality. Now, this is all fine and true and well thought out, and I wish Claire the very best. I only have one problem with the whole thing. It's a 24-hour job to promote yourself in that fashion, and it's soul-crushing. If the central idea is to pretend to care about other people's lives and projects just to promote your own, with the expectation that others will do the same for you, then we're in an impossibly dishonest circle that I want nothing to do with. I make films to express ideas I have about the world, make people laugh, and make people think. I don't make films to pretend I'm famous on Facebook. Maria came over to me during the break, smiling and saying she was getting a lot out of it. I tried to gingerly tell her that I was dying on the inside and needed to get to a hospital. But Frankie, you're saying that it's bad to pretend to be interested in other people's stuff. But you don't have to pretend I really am interested in other people. I don't really think you need to fake it. She's a very good person. I'm a very negative person. But all I could see was Claire insisting that you've got to lie and tweet your way to the top. And filmmaking was an area of my life I was hoping to keep free of lies and tweets. I was slated to go the next Saturday. Instead, I ate the remaining $30 and stayed home. I have no idea what I did with my newly free Saturday, but I'm sure it was better spent. Before having fun up there was even complete, Maria forwarded me a call for submissions to the Buffalo Niagara Independent Film Festival. Since my first filmmaking adventure with Jeff took place in Buffalo Niagara, the Lloyd Kaufman documentary, it seemed right to at least submit. I would later discover that the city of Buffalo is different than and somewhat far from Niagara Falls, which is where Jeff and I had originally shot. It was sweetened further by an early bird deadline that, if met, allowed the filmmaker to waive their submission fee. Festival submissions, if I wasn't clear before, can get expensive, rarely being less than $35, and often being as much as $75. Even if the festival wasn't fantastic, I couldn't see any reason not to submit my film to a festival for free. I went to withoutabox.com, which I made reference to earlier. If you don't know, it's the primary website by which filmmakers submit to film festivals. Any reputable festival will allow films and press kits to be submitted through Without a Box. And I couldn't find the Buffalo Niagara Independent Film Festival. I went to their kludgy website and found they were only accepting films by mail with a paper entry form. To get the fee waiver, you were required to attach the paper promotion. A little old-fashioned and backwards, but still probably worth it. A friend of mine and fellow filmmaker, Neil Murphy, had a lot of success with festival entries for a short he had made several years back. He guessed it on episodes 5 and 6 of my podcast and recommended that, as you enter numerous films to festivals, contact the ones that rejected you and request a fee waiver. If they grant it, great, submit. If they don't, who pays to get rejected by the same girl twice? Drop them. 
This worked on a few festivals, and most relevantly for the Seattle True Independent Film Festival, an alternative-slash-rebel fest of the far more reputable and world-renowned Seattle International Film Festival. On Sexually Frank's festival push, I had lightly brown-nosed programmers by following them on Twitter or friending them on Facebook. I know, where's my soul? And Seattle's programmer Tim Verner was one I never lost that connection with. So when I emailed with a request, he knew me by first name and was nice enough to grant me the fee waiver. The Buffalo Festival sent an email blast on February 9th, 2014. Congratulations! If you've received this email, it is because your film or screenplay has been chosen as one of the BNFF finalists for our 2014 lineup. It took me a while to decipher if that meant I was even in the thing, but subsequent emails with instructions for the exhibition gave it away. Yeah, I guess we were accepted. At least the pop tire and running around yielded a result. A screening date hadn't been announced, but to the cast and crew and other supporters of the film, it was newsworthy. So I announced our acceptance and most of the core group planned on attending, including Will Rogan, John Hunt, Johnny Northrup, Hannah, Nina, Jeff, Kyle, and Molly. My plans to rent a big SUV and drive everyone turned to air travel once Jeff shared the low ticket price of flying from Boston to Buffalo. This knocked John Hunt out of the plans, who felt he might have to buy two seats and didn't want the needless expense. I was disappointed, but knew nothing about this festival and feared our premiere could be a wash, so I didn't twist his arm too much. A word on festival premieres. Film festivals, to stay alive, funded, and attended, need to promote their existences successfully. They do so with parties and opportunities for filmmakers to network, but their most valuable assets are the films they accept. Historically, if your festival programmed a budding, successful film and held the distinction of premiering that movie, it can act as a powerful method of promoting your festival the following years. Programmers, of course, can't know, but often hedge their bets on, whether or not a film they program will go on to be the next Pie or Napoleon Dynamite or My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Therefore, many festivals will only accept films that are premiering. What does a filmmaker do with this information? They gamble with their film's premiere status, which you can't get back once you've given it away. My history shows that, despite how proud I am of my work, my chances of getting into a South by Southwest or Slamdance or Tribeca or Toronto are slim. I may never make a movie better than Sexually Frank, and that only got into two of its 20 submissions, which, I should note, were not pie-in-the-sky choices. Most were festivals like the Zero Film Festival in London, dedicated to self-financed independent filmmakers. That tells me I'm at risk of being rejected by every festival, and should really screen at and attend any venue that will have me. Any subsequent festival that wants me will hopefully be cool enough to not care about my premiere status, which can often be spun. Cinekink was the U.S. premiere of Sexually Frank, Sydney was the international premiere, and Boston was the local premiere. I tried to warn the cast and crew that, for all I knew, our Buffalo premiere could be an empty theater. This was reinforced by the date we were ultimately given, 4 p.m. on Friday, May 2nd. Johnny Northrup, a longtime musician, tossed a little Buddhism at us. It wouldn't be the first time I played to an empty crowd. We all booked flights, as well as suites at the Comfort Inn, which was a block from our screening theater. We twiddled our thumbs and excitedly waited for our trip. On several of the filmmaking-slash-acting community Facebook pages, I noticed that an unusual number of people were happily announcing their acceptance to the Buffalo-Niagara Independent Film Festival. I worried slightly that, among the festival being absent from Without a Box, the highly publicized fee waiver promotion, and now the large number of accepted films, that this festival had an ulterior motive for attracting submissions. Did they cast a large net for submissions with that promotion and then accept everything that came in? Optimistically, I figured they might be lax on what they accept in the interest of bringing as many visitors and artists to their city as possible. A few weeks later, I received some troubling correspondence that only reaffirmed my fears. 
The programmer had been pushing filmmakers to promote their screenings as heavily as possible. That's typical of programmers. They reasonably assume that each film has a small community of advocates and supporters, and if they all attend the screening they're invested in, maybe the festival will be well attended overall. However, this programmer advertised his services as a screening promoter. The subject line was, The BNFF, Marketing and Advertising Your Film is Crucial to Its Success. The email continues, Please do not take this opportunity lightly, as the marketing packages here are very reasonable and are there to help your film be a success. We have done this for many years and can tell you the filmmakers that put the most attention into their marketing and advertising prior to our festival events are the filmmakers that get the most exposure, attention, and gratification of their screening. I'm not telling you this because we are making a fortune off of this. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm telling you this because I'm a filmmaker myself. I've been there. I'm here to help you have the best screening possible. So many great projects these days get overlooked for the mere reason of just that little extra attention. Ultimately, we want you to be happy with your outcome, sell your film, and have a great time while you're here. It only helps us, too, to brag about your project in the future. He goes on to offer myriad price packages, from as low as $300, which gets you posters, postcards, one-sheets, etc. to be displayed at local businesses during the week of the festival, all the way to $2,500, advertised as a $7,500 value, which gets you a full-page ad in the program, local news interviews, and your film sent to, quote, thousands of distributors and managers around the globe. It sounded a lot like the producer's rep but didn't even have the conceit to explain why the party being paid would be capable of these services. I guess we should just trust that this programmer is a bigwig with all the connections. To my excitement and slight surprise, the Seattle True Independent Film Festival confirmed our acceptance into their 2014 lineup. We were now two for two. Hannah, Jeff, and I all definitely wanted to go, if for no other reason than to visit Seattle. It fell on the same week as Buffalo, but I asked Tim, the Seattle programmer, if he could screen us outside the time we would be in New York. He scheduled us for 8 p.m. on a Wednesday. It wasn't ideal, but at least we could make it. Hannah and I booked a room and a flight, and Jeff planned to stay with a friend who was living in the area, and who acted in the film. He's one of the extras in PA's lounge. Our schedule would be to fly to Buffalo on a Friday, watch the movie, head back on a Saturday, and then fly to Seattle on Wednesday. Hannah and I would return to Boston very late Thursday, and if I felt stupid, I would return to work on Friday. To my pleasure, the Buffalo programmer kept extending the deadline for his special and reasonable offer of accepting large amounts of cash for extremely basic services any filmmaker should be able to expect from any festival. I took this as an indication that no one was paying him, and I hope I was right. Then, to add to my confusion, he sent the accepted filmmakers a list of email addresses and phone numbers of local radio programs and news publications and encouraged us to contact them and try to promote our screenings. This was a far more genuine and decent move than his previous peddling, but it was strange that he would first insist that he needed to be hired to promote your film, and then turn around and give you the basic tools you need to do it yourself for free. I designed a boilerplate message about the film in my screening, and sent it to just about every email address he provided, of which there were well over 50. A number of them bounced back, or were forwarded to someone who informed me that the contact no longer works there. His list was clearly out of date and mostly useless but a small handful replied, and ultimately only one station was able to book a radio interview with me. WNY Tonight conducted a live streaming video of their public access show, and I believe they broadcasted to the radio as well. The producer I exchanged email with was very nice, and I was glad to have been on the show. But seriously, the host couldn't have been lamer. I did the live interview over the phone, so I missed a number of things they said and asked. In my verbose nature, I plowed through the confusion by saying, exactly, or yeah, and then talked about what I wanted to talk about. 
When I later watched the live stream, it was clear that the host was some manner of upstate New York mom, asking questions like, Hopefully the movie is about how we're all blessed, no matter how bad things look, right Frankie? When she read the movie synopsis about a late 30s musician in crisis, she assumed it was referring to me and not a fictional character. It was as though she had never seen a film before. Her guest was a filmmaker who was screening at the festival, and while very sweet, she too showed herself to be flighty and lame, asking me questions I had clearly already answered. I feared that my phone audio would sound a little rough in their studio, so I recorded my interview into my high-quality podcasting gear while speaking on the phone, and I cut it into their video after the fact to make myself more audible. This is incredibly nerdy behavior, and I'm the worst. We had a few dropouts on the Buffalo trip. Will Rogan never actually booked a flight or room, Johnny Northrup had to drop out due to a family-slash-home-buying obligation, and Molly abruptly dumped Kyle the week prior, leaving him in a depressed and emotional state. He considered not going, but when a decision had to be made, he came along. May 2nd arrived, and we were in Buffalo. The car rental place had a list of local attractions, which included the home of the original Buffalo Wings, an unremarkable mall, and Toronto. Yes, one of the suggestions that the city of Buffalo gives its visitors is to go to a real city. I'm certainly no locale snob, but I think it's fair to say Buffalo is no vacation destination. It felt like an abandoned backlot in an old movie studio. The streets are wide and show clear evidence of abandoned industry from decades prior. We stopped by the theater at which we were screening, the Market Arcade Film and Art Center. It obviously wasn't a large chain theater, but it was, in every sense, a commercial theater, a good old American multiplex. The concession area had a large Buffalo Niagara Independent Film Festival photo backdrop and a long table with festival programs, postcards, and leaflets for various movies. We collected some of the materials and took a few pictures in front of the backdrop, pretending that we were at a festival that cared about us. We were hours early, but it was definitely a ghost town. As we wandered the space, I walked right by the man who was clearly the programmer. I had seen his image on the internet a number of times. Our conversation was as follows. Are you blank? Silence. I recognize your face. I'm Frankie. Oh, gee, I would have put my hand out. Hey, how are you? Having fun up there? Yeah. We're here for the movie. We came all the way out. Oh, which one? Having fun up there? Oh, having fun up there, yeah. Oh, I thought you were asking if we were having fun up there. We broke off shortly after that, but I was feeling him out to see if he knew who I was or if he remembered the movie at all. If he didn't, it added to the evidence that he accepted every submission. This encounter didn't prove or deny anything necessarily, but I got the sense that he wasn't all that aware of the film. As we flipped through the program, our film was clearly in there, with a graphic, synopsis, and screening time. What were we supposed to pay for again? An ad as opposed to whatever this was? What would be the value of a half-page or full-page ad anyway? Who was this program even being distributed to? He had an incomplete documentary in the festival, and you'd better believe that sucker had a full-page ad. It was one of those docs that promotes itself on the celebrity interviews it has. I couldn't tell you what the actual topic was. Jeff noticed that there was a list of confirmed celebrity interviews, and then a second list of pending celebrity interviews. We laughed at the concept of advertising your work on elements that are unconfirmed. We also discovered that the actress who formerly played Kimberly the Pink Power Ranger had an entry in the festival. Something about a feminist escapade. We seriously considered attending the feminist Pink Power Ranger movie after our film, but the idea wasn't funny enough to sustain actual interest. After a depressing stroll through Buffalo's underwhelming mall, we went to our screening, where Jeff voluntarily bought a ticket as a souvenir, and Hannah bought popcorn. It was the first time one of my movies screened in a place where you could buy a ticket with the name of the movie on it and grab a popcorn. It's the little things, folks. Speaking of little things, the theater was still pretty empty, at least in the lobby and concession areas. 
Three people, two guys and a gal, walked by, and I comically exclaimed that they should see having fun up there in Theater One. They scoffed and shook their heads and kept moving, like I was a panhandler. And they were right, I kind of was. We went to Theater One and walked into an almost entirely empty commercial theater. But there were three people in the very back, the same three who had just passed me. You guys did come to see our movie, I said excitedly. No, you came to see ours. We laughed nervously, realizing that they were the makers of the short that was scheduled to play before ours. I wondered if they would leave after their movie, which was only 20 minutes, compared to our 65-minute feature. To my relief, another man came in right before the first film started, and as far as I could tell, he was a pure soul, only there to watch movies. That first short played, and it was incomprehensible. It was about an African-American family and the romantic-slash-family drama they experience, but we never got to meet any of the characters, and the cinematography might as well have been shot by 12-year-old me. We learned later that it was an episode of a long-running, but nevertheless awful, web series. I worried that our one legitimate audience member was going to bounce, but he stuck around. Having fun up there began, and the image and sound quality were so good, it was almost worth all the lunacy to get to that point. The filmmakers in the back very kindly stayed. About 20 minutes in, I thought I smelled booze, and Hannah informed me that Jeff, in the row ahead of us, was knocking back some vodka. Jeff's comic commentary came out in buzzed ramblings, sometimes cursing his own characters. Other times, he just played air drums to Johnny's music. It was fun. If I learned anything from over two decades in rock bands no one has ever heard of, it's this. If you're going to travel hundreds of miles to showcase to an empty room a piece that you've put blood, sweat, and tears into, be it a movie or a set of songs, you at least owe it to yourself to have fun. At the 40-minute mark, the exhibition Blu-ray we were watching started skipping like crazy, first blowing by the more weight line, then just shutting down completely. But of course, I had backup copies on my person. Trying desperately to maintain whatever audience we had, I rushed to the concession stand and reported the issue, handed them the Blu-ray, and provided a time code to queue up. I didn't get it quite right, so we had to rewatch more than was comfortable, but we got to the end of the film successfully. Our one audience member loved the film and told us we had a great shot at distribution, but he was really just a film fan. He said he loved the story themes, and really responds to films of that nature. He was very sweet, so of course I offered a free Blu-ray copy, but he insisted on giving me 20 bucks. For gas. Once he left, I made my way over to Jeff, who had already been talking to the other movie makers. Like a bunch of filmmaking fools, we were video blogging our conversation with them, and one of their guys was video blogging their conversation with us. As much as I hated their movie, or show, they were incredibly nice and clearly dedicated, and they too had traveled, from Atlanta, I believe, for the underwhelming screening. We quickly established a kinship. Before the show, when we were marveling at the great city of Buffalo, I made mention that I would like to find one of those massive movie and music stores that used to be more prevalent, like Tower Records. My friends laughed a little that I expected to find one of those, but sure enough, we passed by Record Theater, which was just what the doctor ordered. After the movie screened, we made our way there. There was a big, we buy back used DVDs sign, and Nina suggested that I try selling back the few extra copies I had of having fun up there. Amused and dejected, I tried, but the lack of barcode gave it away, and the clerk immediately identified it as being a film I made. I asked if she'll at least take them and sell them in the store, and she did that happily. Today, at Record Theater in Buffalo, New York, two copies of Having Fun Up There are likely somewhere on the floor, and can be yours for the low, low price of whatever they decided. We grabbed some original buffalo wings, debated check-splitting etiquette at restaurants, I'm for splitting checks, Jeff opposes it, and then went back to the hotel, where Hannah and Kyle engaged in a long game of Magic the Gathering, and Nina rented the most horrible films she could find from the front desk. Grown Ups 2, The Zookeeper, 
and Larry the Cable Guy, Witless Protection. We bid adieu the depressing crater that is Buffalo, New York, and headed back to Boston with our heads held somewhat high, confidently crossing our fingers that the very hip city of Seattle would be an improvement. Shortly before the Buffalo trip, I kept my eye on Distriber and noticed it was still under maintenance after all these months. I sent their support contact a curt email, essentially saying, I was interested in your service, but the fact that your submission process has been down for months tells me it's a bad move. I also noticed that they were no longer owned by Indiegogo, which was discouraging. They replied quickly, saying that because it's a long process to approve each film for representation, apparently they rejected some films because they know they'll never be able to get them on iTunes or Netflix or whatever, and then packaged the entries together for a sale. They close submissions once they reach a certain quota of movies. They assured me that by midweek, it would reopen. I kept that message in my inbox as a reminder to just submit Sexually Frank and having fun up there and wash my hands of another drawn-out mess. But as fate would have it, the day before submissions reopened, I was contacted by a gentleman named Josh from Rhodes Film Distribution. He had seen the Having Fun Up There trailer on the Seattle True Independent Film Festival website and was, quote, quite taken with it. He described his distribution company pretty honestly as a two-man startup. His message to me was less boilerplate than I had received in the past, if nothing else. But my guard was up from years of madness. If we were going to continue to talk, I needed him to show me that he watched the full film and believed in it. So I sent him a very brief message along those lines and linked him to the full movie. He promised to take a look later that night or the next day, but 30 minutes later, I received this. I am about 30 minutes into the movie. It's kind of great. I decided to take a look at a few minutes of it after you sent me the link, and I just kept watching. I'm going to finish it up, but I can tell you right now we're definitely interested in taking it on. If you want to chat on the phone about what we do, etc., let me know what time is good for you, and I'll give you a ring. I came back with a very terse, if you want money up front, forget it. He told me that it's all percentage of sales based, no upfront fees at all. I linked him to an interview I did in which I describe, in far less detail than this book, some of my horrible distribution stories. I told him I'm a beaten puppy, and I'm very cynical about these sorts of things. He expressed an old sentiment, which you saw the Buffalo programmer use too. If you get screwed, we get screwed. It benefits us to benefit you. Ideally, that would be true in a relationship like this, but more often it's said and not really true. We spoke on the phone later that night, and to my surprise, the conversation lasted for about an hour. Josh, I found, is my age, and received his MFA at Columbia for playwriting. Rhodes Film Distribution had a mediocre to poor website, but the reality is they're a startup. They have the lofty goal of establishing a relationship with Netflix in which they can acquire a packaged quantity of solid independent films and periodically sell the streaming rights to Netflix. He explained that Netflix never purchases single titles, unless you're a really big independent name, but instead buys packages of films from studios and distributors. I realized that's exactly what Distriber was doing, packaging up a group of films, finalizing a Netflix deal, and then reopening their submission system for the next round. Based out of New York, Josh demonstrated that he had a fair understanding of tiny engagement theatrical film distribution for movies as big, or small if you like, as mine, and just as he was looking for that deal with Netflix, he was also looking to sell his acquisitioned films for screenings at theater chains like Landmark, as well as independently owned theater chains. He described some bad marketing he's seen take place with theatrical runs of low-budget independent films, and had a few ideas on how to do better, most of which was based on developing a cohort of films that could be sold together. He wasn't planning on getting into the DVD market whatsoever. From his perspective, DVD was over and done years ago. He described his acquisition contract the way he describes it on his website. If we do not provide these services at the end of the term period, our option agreement ends and all rights revert back to the filmmakers. We do this because we want people to know that we are working our hardest for them and their films. 18 months was their typical term period. 
He was winning me over. But why should I sign my pretty good movie over to a beginner in startup with no reputation or past credibility at all? Well, let's review. Troma, a 40-year-old studio, left me high and dry for a 20-year term. The producer's rep sold me with experience and supposed connections that were totally useless, as they tried to sell to companies that wouldn't have a clue how to sell a Frankie Frayne movie. Seminal Films was being passed around by low, low-end DVD distributors, performing business like it's 2005, trying to sell terrible films on DVD because they had no clue how else to monetize movies. Film festivals were accepting submissions for free just so they could charge for promotion services to inflate your screening's turnout. And as I deduced when signing with Seminal Films, what position am I in? What are my options if no one else reaches out? Distriber costs thousands, seemingly to do the same things these guys were offering, although Distriber had higher probability of success, based on their several-year existence. How likely is it that no one else will reach out? Based on the previous films, it's highly likely. Seminal Films ended disappointingly, but I asked myself, would I do anything differently? Seminal offered a low-risk contract that I didn't even sign, and no other distribution companies approached us. Despite its failure, it was a reasonable risk to take. On £10, signing with Troma was reasonable too. It was their contract term that I should have negotiated. Although, to be fair to Troma, I've been selling Blu-ray and DVD copies of £10 on my website for years, and they've never even acknowledged it. At least their non-communication with me is consistent. The producer's rep was really the only stupid move that I wholeheartedly regret, the lesson learned being the silver lining. These guys at Rhodes Film Distribution struck me as the distribution version of myself, they were trying something new, attempting to invent a new way for movies like mine to penetrate small markets. Although their website left something to be desired, the trailers to their current acquisitions actually looked pretty good. If I had to take a risk, and everything with independent film distribution is a risk, I would prefer to take it with Sexually Frank than having fun up there. Sexually Frank's life had ended. I was fairly certain there would be no more festivals, distribution offers, or screenings. Giving that movie to these guys to work with, which is, again, widely considered to be my best film, Seemed like a no-brainer. I sent them the trailer, some press materials, and the full link to Sexually Frank. To my surprise, Josh far preferred having fun up there, and on our phone conversation, believed it to be a lot more marketable in the current state of the indie scene. That's not something I have a good finger on. I know that both films could be reduced to pandering, typical indie fodder if you want to hate on them, or you could regard them as relatable, natural, honest films with some nuance and heart. Still, Josh thought Sexually Frank was pretty good, and was willing to take it on if we gave him having fun up there with it. He wanted to establish long-term partnerships with filmmakers, and was made all the happier by having multiple titles from the same director. So if I submitted both films to Distriber, and opt for an iTunes, Netflix, Amazon VOD deal, I'm about $4,000 in the hole, with the fun cachet of having films available on those services, but with a low probability of being well-viewed. Seriously, who rents pay-per-view titles off of iTunes? Distriber just kind of posts the films to those services, and then it's up to you to promote them. If I sign with Josh, at the very most, he may be able to get me a few cool theatrical screenings, of which I would still do a decently attended one, and will get me on Netflix, and I will not have to pay out of my own pocket to do it. If those things work out, I'll also have an easy film distribution option for subsequent films I make, so I don't have to endure headaches like these every time I complete a movie. Looking at the contract, at the worst, I lose the ability to work with another distributor for 18 months, 12 months for Sexually Frank. Since they were uninterested in DVD sales, I was able to negotiate shared rights for DVD and Blu-ray so that I could continue to sell those through my website. I'm also allowed to hold private screenings as long as I don't charge for admission, and film festival screenings continue to be fair game. We also negotiated multiple clauses by which film rights revert to me and the contract terminates, inactivity over a certain period, bankruptcy on their part, etc. 
The chance for success was low, but so was the risk, and their strategy was refreshing. No one knows how to release movies like Sexually Frank and Having Fun Up There, and these young guys think they might know how to crack the code. Of course, all courting distributors are going to complement work they want to acquire, but I got the sense that these guys actually did believe something could be done with these films. By my count, they had only acquired six movies. We would be seven and eight. Why would they acquire works they don't believe in so early in their enterprise? After a few conversations with Nina, John Hun, and Jeff, we were ready to sign, but decided to wait until after Seattle, just in case another freak encounter with a distributor happens. We really didn't know what to expect from this festival.